0: Uh, I'm Zach, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's a privilege to be with you. If you're new, we'd love to get to know you. At the end of the service, you'll hear from James how we would love to get to know you. Um, if you have a Bible, please open it to 2 Peter, starting in chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, um, there's probably one on an app in your phone. So that's another option. Uh, there's some in the back. We'd love for you to have a Bible if you don't have one. So please take one over table here, table back here. Okay, Because we really want you to follow along. I really encourage you to bring your Bible to church. Because we want you to be able to see that what's on the screen actually fits into a whole. And when you carry a whole Bible with you, implicitly you're saying to yourself, oh yeah, remember, this isn't just words on a screen. It's connected to something. And so that's why it's important to bring your Bible and you can actually see how it all fits together. Okay, So I really encourage you to do that. Again, if you don't have one, please take one and you can have that as a gift from us to you. So... We've got some uh, some work to do today because today's text is a little tougher, okay. And what's happening in today's text, Second Peter chapter one, starting in verse sixteen through twenty-one. Today's text is like we're being dropped into a conversation that we don't really have a ton of context about in terms of the immediate verses that we're looking at, okay. Um, it'd be kind of like you roll up on some friends, and they've been talking for 20 minutes, and then you hear them say something, and it, for for you to understand really what they're talking about and the essence of it, you'd have to hear the previous 20 minutes, and maybe the the the, the 20 minutes after it, right? So uh, that's what we're gonna do today. I'm gonna try to show you before we dive into our text how our text fits into the whole of Second Peter, because that's really the only only way we can understand. Our text for today. Okay, so today I'm gonna have to do like a little more teaching, just like straight teaching, than maybe I normally would. So let's let's lean in, you know, um, engage, and I think and I think God's gonna really bless us through this word this morning. All right, so let me summarize first the essence of what we've seen for the past three weeks, verses three through fifteen. Maybe just have your eyes scan over it as I summarize. So here's kind of a basic summary of three through fifteen of chapter one. God has given us the power that we need to live a life that pleases him. A life of godliness. Not a life of perfection, but a life of godliness. That's verses 3 and 4. And if you are a Christian, Peter wants us to live like a Christian. Okay? Your walk has to match your talk. Okay? That's verses 5, 6, and 7. Okay? You should be who you are. Don't forget who you are, verses 8 and 9. And if you continue to live the life of a Christian, this confirms that you are a Christian. Makes sense, right? You grow in assurance of your salvation through seeing your life change and growth in holiness over time. That's verses 11 and 12. So Peter's stressing that this is a really good thing, to remember that my walk has to match my talk. That if I'm a person of faith, that faith has to actually look like something. James said, faith without works is dead, okay? And this is, Peter's just saying the same thing, okay? Good works don't save you, but they do show that you have been saved. See the difference? So Peter's whole point is how you live matters. How you live matters, okay and it brings assurance of salvation now let's look at verse 16 for today so standing on the shoulders of all of that he now says for so it's like he's continuing the thought okay for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our lord Jesus now, why would Peter bring up the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? Right on the heels of talking about how we live matters. If you say you're a Christian, you need to act like a Christian. Like, we just got done saying that in the creed. That he will come again to judge. Right? Why would he bring that up? It seems a little bit out of nowhere, doesn't it? Well, here's why. Look at me at chapter 2, just kind of as a whole. And you can scan through there, and you can see Peter's kind of fired up. And what he's fired up about is false teaching in the church. There's false teachers that are infecting Peter's audience with lies. Okay, that's a big deal. And one of the main lies is that verse 16 is false. He will not come back. He's not returning. Don't believe it is baloney. That's what they're saying. Okay? Now, why would they do that? Well, let's look forward to verse 18 of chapter 2. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. So Peter's reminding these early churches that these false teachers appeal to kind of a a whatever feels good, do it mentality. That's the sensual passions here in verse 18. Like a complete disregard for any higher authority other than self. Right? So you can see how that would be the opposite of what he just got done talking about in verses 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 of chapter 1. Right? Right? So whatever you want to do, whatever feels good, do it. That's what the false teachers are saying. And then look at how he expands on this in chapter 3, verse 3. Just flip ahead a couple verses. It's another description of these false teachers. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Another translation could be sinful lusts, okay? And here's what they're going to say, verse 4. They will say, Where's the promise of his coming? They have in view here, again, this do-whatever-feels-right kind of mentality. That's sinful desires in verse 3. And that's connected to Jesus is not going to return. So the thinking would go from these false teachers is Jesus is a fraud. He's not going to return, so do whatever you want. I mean, if this life is all there is, I mean, just get yours in this life right now. That just makes sense, right? Right? Jesus' promise to return is not a precious promise, see verse 3. It's a worthless promise. That's what these false teachers were saying. Live however you feel because Jesus is a fraud. No second coming. Now this is the conversation that we're being invited to understand, okay? This is in the background of Peter's mind as he's writing to this audience, okay? Okay? This is the essence of that false teaching. How you live doesn't matter. Christ is not going to return. Since Christ is not going to return, how you live doesn't matter. It's just his life. There is no final judgment. It's just his life, so get yours now. Do what feels good now. All right, so with all that in mind, let's go back to verse 16. Remember, on the heels of this is verses 12, 13, 14, and 15, which say, I don't want you to forget how you live does matter. Just look at that text. It's not on the screen. Just look at it in your Bible. He's saying, I want you to recall this. I want you to remember this. Remember what? Remember that what I said, how you live does matter. If you say you're a Christian, you got to act like one, okay? And then he says, verse 16, for, meaning in light of all that, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming or the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses to his Majesty. So he's saying, you can listen to me, Peter's saying, you can listen to me because it's true. It's not a myth. It's a fact. It's not a fabrication. You can listen to me. And now he starts to make his case for why you can listen to him and not these false teachers. And he starts with this phrase, look at the end of 16. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This is point number one of why you should listen to Peter, okay? What's that got to do with anything? Why is he bringing this phrase up? Well, what he's starting to do is he's starting to appeal to a higher authority, okay? So let's read verses uh, 16, 17, and 18. But we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his Majesty. And now he's going to describe what that means. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So why would Peter? Bring all this up. It sounds kind of out of nowhere, and it sounds like it doesn't really fit with what he's saying. How does this—what does this have to do with your— Christian life does matter, how you live does matter, and Jesus is going to return. Well, what he's referring to here is what the Bible calls the transfiguration. And this is an event from Peter's life, probably about 30 years previous to this writing, okay? Okay? Now, this event in Peter's life may be new to some of you if you're new to your Bible, okay? So let's understand what what he's referring to here. This event that Peter is referencing here in 16, 17, and 18 is found in Matthew chapter 17. Don't turn there, but I'm just going to show you what he's referring to and where it's found in the Bible, this transfiguration event, okay? This is Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, our author, right? Peter— And then two other guys, James and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So what's this all about? This is just metaphorical language for the glory of God. The glory of Jesus. Whenever the Bible talks about God's glory, not whenever, but oftentimes when the Bible talks about God's glory, it uses light language. One of the most famous examples would be the end of the book of Revelation. It says, in the new heavens and the new earth, there won't be a need for the sun because the glory of God is the light. And the glory and the light of the Lamb. Okay? So what that's saying is God's glory is just magnificent and beautiful and transcendent and all-consuming. And that's what Peter was seeing, okay? He was seeing Jesus' unveiled glory, okay? He was seeing Jesus' future glory, like Revelation talks about, breaking into the present on that mountain with James and John, Okay? Verse 3 says this, And behold, there appeared with them, Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud cloud said, This is my beloved son. Sound familiar? Because that's exactly what we read read in the text for today, right? Because Peter heard it. He remembered it. I promise you, because this was so dramatic. Here's what it says. Uh, this is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. What? Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. This much glory, human beings can't handle, right? It's too heavy. It's too weighty. You've got to hit the deck. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So, so, Peter quotes what he heard the Father say. He said, This is my Son. Jesus is the guy. And, and so, what, what do we do as a result? We listen. He says, The Father says, Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him. So, why would Peter bring all this up? As he's thinking about this early church being infected by false teachers that are saying, Do whatever comes natural. Who cares? There's no God. Just do whatever you want to do. Live how you want to live. If you feel it, do it. Jesus is not going to return. That's a lie. Why would he bring this scene into that whole context of what he's writing about? Well, he's trying to appeal to a higher authority. This is the first step in his case to be persuasive. He's appealing to a higher authority. Now, we, we do this all the time. Kids love to do this, okay? So, in, in a child's world, oftentimes mom and dad is the highest authority, right? Especially when they're little. So a sister might say to a little brother, hey, little brother, did you know that mom and dad are going on a date night tonight? And guess what? We're not having a babysitter, and we get unlimited screen time until they get home. And little brother would be like, just like shocked disbelief. No way. I don't believe you. That's too good to be true. And then what does sister say? Sister says, dad said. You can believe me. Why? Because I'm playing the trump card now because dad said so. Right? Kids do that all the time. Mom said. Dad said. What are they doing? They're appealing to a higher authority. In a little kid's world, the highest authority is usually mom or dad. And so to be convincing, to be persuasive, dad said, you can trust me. Right? Dad doesn't have a track record of lying to us. Right? You can trust Dad's word. Dad's word is authoritative. And Peter's doing the same thing. Peter's doing the same thing. Look at the end of verse 16 when he says, But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's appealing to the fact that he hung out with and heard the absolute confirmation of the father on Jesus. He heard the father say things about this Jesus that he's calling this church to believe in. It's like he's saying, dad said, dad said, I heard him say it. And what did he say? He said, listen to Jesus. Implication, don't listen to false teachers. Listen to Jesus. Dad said, if Jesus says, I'm gonna return to make all things right and to judge it's gonna happen, Dad said. These false teachers, they don't have glory like I saw that day on the mountain. They don't shine like the sun. All they are is talk. The future glory of Christ that will be seen when he returns, I saw it 30 years ago. That's what Peter's saying here. It was a quick snapshot on that mountain. That glory will return one day, though. And if it happened back then, 30 years ago, I guarantee it's going to happen in the future. Or else it would have never happened back then. I heard the voice of dad. I heard the voice of the father. I saw the future glory of Jesus. So, his promise is worthy to be trusted. Now, with all that explanation in mind, let's read 16, 17, and 18 again and see if this makes more sense. In light of him already saying... If you say you're a Christian, you gotta act like a Christian. It brings great assurance and don't forget, okay? For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. What I'm saying is true when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's gonna happen, he's saying. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. So here's the gist of it thus far. Contrary to what false teachers are saying, how you live does matter because Jesus will one day return. And if you prove by the way that you live that you're not a Christian, that day will not be good for you. That promise of his return is certain. And Jesus always keeps his promises. And Peter saw the future glory with his own eyes. So Peter's making a case to be persuasive to his first audience against false teachers. And the first step in his case is... This unique tactic of talking about the transfiguration. I was there. I saw the coming glory of Jesus back then. False teachers don't have that. That's part one, but there's still part two. I got something else on my side. And the something else is this. I've got the whole Old Testament And it points to the fact that God's promises are worthy to be trusted, namely that the Messiah will return and make all things right. I've got the Bible on my side. So I've got this experience of the transfiguration. I've got my personal history on my side. I've also got a, a literal literary history on my side. So a lot of you will probably remember, well, we'll see compared to the first service. Who remembers the name Nate Silver. Bring him up, bring him up. Yeah, my man Rob over here. He loves Nate Silver. He's Mister Statistician. So Nate um, was all about uh, kind of predicting political races, and he did so with an amazing amount of accuracy. So 2008, he predicted how every state except for one would vote for the presidential race. Okay. And he predicted it, and it came to pass. 49 out of 50. Pretty cool. 2012, he did it again, but he got 50 out of 50. Okay? So all of a sudden, this this political strategist or whatever, statistician, I don't know what you would call him, uh, guy that makes predictions about politics that always come true, he got really famous. Okay? All over the news, people wanting his opinion. Time Magazine named him one of the top 100 most influential people in the year 2000. Evidently not so much in this room. But um, he's, he's all over the place. And he got all this popularity for making a prediction and having it come to pass. It's pretty amazing. It was 99%. And Peter is saying something similar Everyone looks at Nate Silver and goes, man, that guy's got authority. That guy knows what he's talking about. You should listen to him because he's, he's, he's almost batting 1,000, right? And Peter's saying the same thing. Even better than Nate Silver, God's prophets don't miss. God's Old Testament prophets have not missed yet. What they say comes to pass. They bat a 1,000, and they talked about Jesus' return, so don't believe those false teachers. When they say, Jesus is a fraud, he's not returning. Look at verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what does he mean by prophetic word here? That's a phrase we don't use very often. What he means is just the Old Testament, especially in light of this context where the return of Christ is at stake. Do you believe it or not? What he means here is the Old Testament prophecies referring to that event. And there's a lot of them, and I'm not going to take the time to, to lay them all out here. So when Peter says, verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, what does that mean? It means that these Old Testament prophecies are certain and will come to pass. But in, my, in addition to that, with my experience of the transfiguration of Jesus, Christ's future glory, breaking into the present, Jesus' promise of returning to judge and make all things right should be even more sure in your hearts. Like, the Old Testament prophets are great, and you should believe that alone. But if you got the transfiguration in addition to that, man, it should be so confirmed in your head, it's without question. That's what he's saying, more fully confirmed, verse 19. So the whole point is this. False teachers are false. God's word through the Old Testament prophets is always true. The Bible is true. They weren't making this stuff up, and it's coming to pass, and it will more fully come to pass. And then he just goes on in verse 20 and 21 and saying that Old Testament prophecy is just not something willy-nilly. It's something that God gave, prophets delivered, and it's true, and it can be trusted. So that's the summary of of Peter's argument. How you live matters, because Jesus is worthy to be trusted. If you say you trust him, your life needs to look like something. It needs to look like trust, faith, and that's going to equate to obedience or repentance when you fail. And these false teachers are just that, they're false. And if you want to go with them, if you really want to go with them and be persuaded by them, here's two things you've got to deal with. You've got to reject two things what I saw in the transfiguration, Peter's saying, and you have to reject God's word. You've got to reject the Old Testament promises. So you've got to reject Peter's experience, you've got to reject the Bible. And Peter's just writing to this church that's being tempted by false teachers and telling them that it's not worth it. He just wants their faith to be strong. He doesn't want this fragile, you know, first century church to to, to implode through false teaching or through lives of immorality that make, make Christianity look stupid to an onlooking culture. He's just basically affirming his own authority as an apostle and the authority of the Bible. And he's saying that should be enough for this church to stand strong against false teaching. Now when we think about our time and place in which we live, are we really that different? This is what's so awesome about this text is because you can make a direct link between them and us, and it's not hard. Because we've got people in our day Over and over again, saying things like, just another version of what we read in 218. Sensual passions, sensual lusts. If it feels good, do it. If you have the desire, that's your destiny. Why should you be constrained by some religious notion that wants to squash who you really are? How dare anyone say that, they, that you shouldn't live as you want to live? If, if you desire it, do it. If you think it'll make you happy, who's to say that you shouldn't pursue how you want to define happiness? Right? Be who you want to be. Right? Define truth for you as you see fit and live your truth. I mean, just almost every single Disney movie that you've ever seen is that message. Just self-actualization, and, and I'm not, like, banning Disney in our home. My kids watch those movies. It's, it's whatever. But just know that it's there, right? It's all about you becoming who you want to be. Don't let anybody squash your dreams, shoot for the stars, right? And that's good in its right context, but there's a deeper cultural issue here that we can't ignore that's very similar to who Peter is writing to, right? Right? All of that sounds great, assuming there's no God. If there's no God, then yeah. Your desire maybe is your destiny. And, and if there's no God and there's no return of Christ and this is all we have, then yeah, why not just go for it right now? Get yours while you can. Life is short and then we die. So he with he who the most toys wins, right? Well, that makes sense if there is no God. There's no eternity. If those false teachers are right, if Jesus is a fraud, See, all of these cultural statements that we hear and that Peter's audi- first audience we're hearing assumes something. And it assumes that we personally, in and of ourselves, are the ultimate arbiters and deciders of what's truly right and wrong. There's no outside perspective other than what I personally think. And if there's no God and he, and if he has spoken, but I'm sorry, but if there is a God and he has spoken in the prophets and in Jesus' ultimately, and in the apostles, then that implies that there is a true right and wrong. I know this is so basic, it's obvious, but we miss it. And Peter is simply assuming this contrary to all the voices in his culture and in our culture. And if, if there is a God and his name is Jesus and he is going to return and make all things right and set the scales through judgment of right and wrong, then that has implications for our lives, does it not? either we're going to be having to suss out at the end the right and wrong in and of ourselves, or we're going to have Jesus cover us and he actually taking our place and being the one who was judged wrong so that I could be made right will take it for me. Those are the choices on the last day. See, see if God is going to return and make all things right, How is he going to do that? He has to judge, right? And what are his judgments based on? They're based on him. He is the arbiter of true right and wrong. The eternal, the creator, he gets to decide what is right and wrong. It's not some wishy-washy standard of personal preference. No, God is the standard, right? And if he is returning and he will one day be the and final judge that assumes that there actually is a real right and wrong outside of our personal experience, outside of just what I think, outside of just what I rage about on Twitter or Facebook, right? And Peter's assumption here, part of what he's pleading with his people is believe it because you don't want to be on the wrong side of it. So at the end of the day, we're in the exact same position as Peter's first audience cuz he's just calling them to believe. He's calling them to decide. He's calling them to reject false teaching and believe true teaching. And that's really the application for, point for today. What are you going to believe? Are you going to believe the culture, the cultural voices that say Jesus is a fraud and do whatever you want? Don't let anybody constrain your desires. Or are you going to listen to King Jesus? And are you going to seek to, de- to, to de- define your desires based on his desires and pursue the greatest life and joy possible through defining your desires by his desires? So which is it going to be? And that's a faith question that has to be answered. Is Jesus who he said he is, yes or no? Will Jesus return, yes or no? Did Jesus truly rise from the dead, yes or no? Those are, qu- those are Christian questions that we have to answer. And so which way are we gonna land? False teaching or true teaching? Let me close with this. Some of you may come from a Christian background where this talk of judgment and, and right teaching um, centered on the return of Christ to make all things right and to judge. That was maybe like every single Sunday you heard basically, you better get your act together or you're going to hell. Or you better get your act together or when Jesus returns he's just going to come and whack you. And you just live in a constant state of fear. But the correct teaching that Jesus will one day return is not meant to be a source of fear. It's not meant to try to like guilt you into obedience. That's not the point at all. Jesus' return is supposed to be a source of profound comfort. Now for those of you who might not be Christians here, it might not be a comfort until you become a Christian, but it can be a comfort today if you are willing To become a Christian, because here's how the gospel works. If if you're willing to come to Jesus as your greatest trust, as your greatest hope, as your greatest desire, cast idols aside and worship the true God, if you're willing to do that and come to Jesus, He said that He came to lay down His life for you. And what that means is that He bore the judgment of God for you already on the cross, so you don't have to fear that one day coming. He's the divine substitute. So if you trust Him for the forgiveness of your sins, through Him bearing the penalty of those sins for you, you don't have to fear judgment because judgment's taken away. Jesus absorbed it for you as the most gracious gift you could ever imagine. So do you want that? The invitation is all who are willing to come, come. Every demographic, Every people group, every age, stage, educational, degrees, whatever, all are willing to come. And he says, come to me. I'm willing to give if you're willing to receive. Trust me. Treasure me above all else and follow me. And so at that point, you become a Christian. And at that point, Romans 8.1 is applied to you. And it says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And if that's true, then the second coming of Jesus is not something to be feared. It's something that is the ultimate summation of all of my deepest desires. I don't fear Jesus' return. I look forward to it. I say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, because you're the one I want. Who and I am in heaven besides you? You are my strength and my portion forever. How could I not want you? I don't want your stuff. I want you. And that's the second coming. That's... That's beautiful. So, Peter's whole point is that the gospel's true. False teachers are false. So, let's keep living like we believe that. Let's keep on keeping on, church. It's worth it. Jesus is legit. His glory will be tasted one day, and it will be so sweet. I saw it, it's coming again. Let's press on. The Bible, taste and see that the Lord is good. Read it. Know you can trust it. Let's keep doing it. Let's keep praying it. Let's keep fighting against unbelief, knowing that when we do, our lives will look so beautiful that our culture will have to stand up and take notice, and then we'll have the opportunity to tell them where our lives look the way they do. It's Jesus. He's alive in us. He's not a fraud. He's the real deal, and we trust him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word that you've given to us. Thank you for your scripture that that lightens our path, helps us on our way, is our sure and perfect guide. Lord, would you help us um, have soft hearts to receive it, and may it not just terminate today, but may it truly um, conform us to your will, in Jesus' name.